folks as a community live into our values and in our worship experience together. So I don't know where Joseph is at the moment. Oh, there he is. Thank you. And uh, so thank you, Joseph. I really appreciate it and coordinating everything for us. That's been a, a wonderful gift. Amen. And before, yeah, thank you. <laughs> before, before we get into the message for today, some of you know that this past weekend was our Evangelical Covenant Church's, our denomination's annual meeting right here in Minneapolis. And uh, there's a couple of highlights of the annual meeting. Now, annual meetings are business meetings. So the first highlight is when the gavel hits and its business is over. So that's one highlight. The other highlight is... <laughs> the other highlight is the ordination service. And I'll, and I'll just say, the covenant does ordination well. And, uh, and two of our own were ordained on Saturday night. And uh, yeah, so I'm gonna, I want to invite up the Reverend Edrin C. Williams. <laughs> and the Reverend Nicole S. Smith. Yeah. <laughs> So I wish, I wish I had more time to talk about it, but seriously, we go through a lot. And, and uh, the first on our staff to be ordained by the covenant was Pastor Rose. Then I had my uh, credential transferred over. Then Pastor Mike had his credential transferred over. And now this year, we have two of our own uh, being ordained. And, and I, just to say a little bit, the stoles are made n- different every year. There's a different uh, stole, and they're made by folks in the covenant church. So it's a wonderful, um, we take this very seriously. But apart from even all the fanfare, it's just to keep in mind that just like the Holy Spirit spoke in the book of Acts to the church at Antioch and said, separate from me, Paul and Barnabas, for the work that I've called them, in the same way, that same spirit speaks to the church today and says, I have my hand on these to do a work for my church. And we as sisters and brothers stand with them in the call that God has placed in their lives. So I wanted to take this moment for us to pray. The chair of our elder board was here in the morning, so I'm going to see. I don't think he's here at the second service. If he's not, we're going to call some of the other elders up. I see Daniel's around, and we'll get some of our other elders just to come on up here and join with me. Our sister Vida's right here in front of me, and so she can come on around. And, uh, and, and <laughs> Vida could do it without your hand. I <laughs> think she could, she, could, she could jump that, but she's not going to do that on Sunday. I'm going to get you to scoot on over. And uh, the rest, if you could stand and stretch out your hand, um, we just want to offer a word of prayer, blessing on these. Now, Nicole, if you don't know, she's not employed by our church, but she serves as a chaplain, and she's on our, on our, um, alt, our elder board and on the altar team. How long have you been a chaplain, Nicole? Four and a half years. Four and a half years. She's been serving the Lord in, in, in the hospital setting. And, uh, and Pastor Edwin, of course, he's been here, was here before I came, uh, working in youth ministry and then on to uh, pastoral ministry in a broader way. So we want to pray our blessings on them as a church family. Let's pray together. God of glory, we give you honor this morning because it is by your spirit we are led, it's by your spirit we are called. And Lord, you have called these two to ministry, to service in, the, in your church broadly. And, and our denomination has recognized the gifts and calling in them. Lord, we thank you that they could partake of that ceremony. But even beyond the ceremony, Lord, we ask for your continued guidance in their life as they live out their calling in word and sacrament to be able to serve your church, 
to, to nurture their calling, to always be studying, to always be growing, to always be moving forward. Lord, I pray that you would challenge them and encourage them and use us as a congregation to support them, to be ready to receive a spiritual guidance and as you were to lead them to give it to us. Lord, as Nicole works in the, church, in the, in the hospital, even as an extension of this church, I pray, Lord God, you would bless her and strengthen her, give her a special sense of your power and presence as she ministers, Lord. For Pastor Edrin, Lord, I, can, I pray you continue to minister through him and even as he ministers more broadly, even beyond the sanctuary, I pray, Lord God, that as he represents us in those various places, Lord, that he would be able to speak confidently that his congregation stands with him in the service uh, to our King. Lord, thank you for what you have done in their lives to this date and what you will do beyond. Lord, we give you glory. We pray your blessings in the name of your son, Jesus, for his sake, by his authority. Amen. Amen. God bless y'all. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, brother. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Amen. I, I love those moments. If you weren't able to be there, I, um, it's still up on the, um, on the Covenant website. You could, I, li- I live streamed it so I could get some good screenshots, too, of them. And there's a bunch of our friends in the Twin Cities were ordained. But if you weren't able to be there, and I know a bunch of Sanctuary were folks there, because I was live streaming. And you know how at graduation they say wait to the end, you know, to cheer for people. So I'm live streaming, and I've got the, you know, sound going. And, when they, and it went in alphabetical order. So when they got the Smith, oh my goodness, Nicole, your people and our people, they let, they let everybody know that we were there. <laughs> you warned them, I know, but that's okay. That's okay. You had to give them a heads up. <laughs> and then when it got to Williams, and Edwin was, I think, next to last, because I think there was a Z after you. Edwin was next to last. When I got to Williams, I heard, yeah. So yes, thank you, Sanctuary, for showing up and showing out. Amen. I know everybody couldn't be there, but like I said, you can see it on the recording. Well, let me take another moment to pray as we get into the message. Lord, we continue to give you thanks for the day, and I pray now you would help me to communicate from your word as we've come today to worship you, to hear from you, and to take something with us. I pray, Holy Spirit, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight. You are our strength, our rock, our redeemer. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm also really excited to have most of my family here with me, folks uh, traveling. So that was one reason why I didn't actually go to the ceremony last night. So it was like, you know, covenant business, grandson. I'm taking grandson. So anyway, (laughs) well, thanks for somebody. So yeah, there they go. Yay, family. So thanks. (laughs) Now, one of the things that I hope for for any church, and particularly our church, is that we'll love people into the kingdom of God. Now, hopefully, hopefully you've heard me say many times that my goal is for us to be a community of Christ followers that love each other and love our neighbors. Now, there are nominal Christians who stop going to church, and there are unbelievers who will avoid church, and we often think that they'll come if we, you know, I have that effect on children. I make them so... We, do, we think that people will come if we can simply be cooler, hipper, more expertly polished, 
or some other thing that relates more to aesthetics than the substance. So we do all sorts of stuff. Cotton candy, acrobatics, secular music, ma magicians, fog machines, skinny jeans, although I can't help you with that one. And there's so many of those kinds of things we do. And what I found that those things are successful at pulling Christians from one church to another church because they want to go to the more exciting church. But the unchurched folks, that's not necessarily what they're looking for. The megachurch phenomenon of the 80s had us thinking that all the cool stuff will pack the pews, and it did. But even the great Willow Creek Community Church discovered that packing tens of thousands of people into a building every weekend was not necessarily making more disciples. To their credit, they did their own self-assessment. They did a study, and they did this just a few years ago, and they, they took a serious inventory of their ministry. You could talk about this, Brother Chris. I think you know. They admitted that they were woefully inadequate at making disciples, which is the mission that Jesus gave his disciples. Unchurched people are not necessarily looking for the show. They just want to know, will they be welcome? Will they be loved? Will they find a listening ear or will the preacher only rant and rave and hoop and holler and spit into the mic for an hour, throw around lots of Christian cliches and beg for your money? Now, some church people are okay with that, but many unchurched people are not. Y'all with me? I just shocked y'all already. Okay. <laughs> our success at helping to transform our community with the love of Christ will be directly related to how comfortable we are boldly living for Jesus. In other words, the question isn't, can I convince my friends to come to my cool church? The question is, can I live in such a way that my friends will want to know the Jesus that I know? And that's not an easy question to answer, especially in these days. I mean, I can't speak for all of you, but it's possible that some of you might feel like I do in calling myself a Christian. It's become um, complicated. I don't want to be lumped into a stereotype. I don't want to be seen as Ned Flanders. Now, Ned Flanders, his character is kind-hearted and decent, but he's also naive, annoying, out of touch. His faith is pretty shallow. In one episode, his wife came back from a retreat, and she said, I was on a retreat learning how to be more judgmental. I don't want to be Ned Flanders, but I also don't want to be this guy. Now, Robert Jeffers, I, I, no, no disrespect to him being a reverend, but his nationalism has trumped his Christian faith. There are way too many Christians like this. We're at a point when many people still don't understand that Christian faith and nationalism are different things. And part of our difficulty as Christian believers today is that we don't always know how to witness for Jesus in our polarized context. We might even come to the point of being ashamed to call ourselves Christian. In fact, I know a lot of people will never use that term. So, that, so we say Christ follower or Jesus follower or some other term that seems more genuine and less freighted with, with political baggage. So my hope today is to encourage us not to be ashamed to be followers of Christ and to get us to accept the challenge to be bold witnesses for Jesus wherever we are and no matter what we do for a living. The transformation of our communities will come to the degree that it can be transformed, not mainly through politics. You don't fix broken stuff with more broken stuff. We need some divine intervention. Change happens when grassroots movements of people genuinely love Jesus, which means following the Lord's teaching, which means loving radically, even 
our enemies. So we continue today with our study of a letter called 2 Timothy. It was written by the Apostle Paul to his son in the ministry, Timothy, and it's Paul's final letter while, while he was in prison awaiting execution. So as I transition from the sanctuary, uh, folks asking me how long will I be here, don't worry, I'm leaving. Don't worry. I mean, people stop me like, you, you still here? I, um, I'll be here through July, through July 29th. <laughs> Somebody asked me this morning, I said, oh, I thought you were going already. No, not till July 29th. So we'll work our way through 2 Timothy through that time. <laughs> and last week, we were in the first seven verses of chapter one, where Paul encourages Timothy, reminds him that our faith is a family affair. He mentions his ancestors. He mentions Timothy's mother and grandmother, and he calls him his son. He also says that uh, we should rekindle our gifts. Get back on fire with your gifts and to not give in to a spirit of fear but one of love, power, and self-discipline. So we're going to continue on with 2 Timothy chapter 1, just to finish out this chapter today, starting at verse 8. Do not be ashamed, then, of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel, relying on the power of God, who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. For this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher, and for this reason, I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed. For I know the one in whom I have put my trust, and I am sure that he is able to guard until that day what I have entrusted to him. Hold to the standard of sound teaching that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Guard the good treasure entrusted to you with the help of the Holy Spirit living in us. You are aware that all who are in Asia have turned away from me, including Phagellus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. When he arrived in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you know very well how much, he served, how much service he rendered in Ephesus. Did you notice in those few verses how much Paul mentioned the word ashamed? He says it in verse 8. He says it in verse 12. He says it again in verse 16, ashamed. Along with this topic of shame, he also mentions suffering. They often go together. And it's like in the old hymn, on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. Yet the cross worked for our benefit. I believe that if we take seriously our witness as Christians, we need to abandon any pressure we might feel to be the coolest church and put more energy into being honest, faithful, and loving. Are we ashamed of Jesus? Now, I'm not talking about bumper stickers and Christian t-shirts because our faith is more than a slogan. I'm talking about being there for neighbors when they're sick about showing up at community events. I'm talking about advocating for just laws that don't demean other human beings. I'm talking about being model employees on our jobs. 
I'm talking about caring for God's creation. I'm talking about loving immigrants, helping refugees, and giving our time and money to God's work in the world. I mean, the list is long, and I know we can't do everything, but we could probably spend a bit less time on Facebook and Netflix, or words with friends for me, and maybe more time just trying one or two things that help to represent Jesus better in this world. Because here Paul is in prison at the moment. And here at this time, the Christian faith does not appear to be the route to one's best life now. Yet Paul tells Timothy, don't be ashamed. He says, don't be ashamed of, my, uh, of the witness for the Lord and don't be ashamed of my situation. Shame, honor. These were important concepts in ancient cultures around the Mediterranean and some cultures still. Let me share with you just part of the story of two women who uh, were back in the third century. This would be the early 200s, just briefly. Their names are Perpetua and Felicity. There's an icon, a picture of an icon of them. Two women killed for their faith in North Africa at the beginning of the third century. The emperor was Septimius Severus. You Harry Potter fans might appreciate the name Severus. Uh, I won't go down that road right now because I know you Harry Potter folk anyway. But Emperor Severus allowed Christians to be persecuted throughout the empire. Perpetual was of noble birth. Felicity was a slave. Both were arrested for being Christians, both of them. At this time, Christians were not in bed with the empire. In fact, despite what you heard about Romans 13 from the Attorney General of the U.S., the Romans killed Christians even as those Christians tried to respect the government. They respected the government but refused to dishonor the Lord in the process. They refused to worship the emperor. That's what the government expected them to do. So here's Perpetua, a young nursing mother who was allowed to nurse her baby in prison. And because Perpetua was of noble birth, people paid attention to the conversation she had with her father. And on the day before her execution, the, the historians tell us this interaction took place. Her father came and said, have pity on my gray head. Have pity on me, your father, if I deserve to be called your father, if I have favored you above all your brothers, if I have raised you to reach this prime of your life. He threw himself down before her and kissed her hands. Do not abandon me to be the reproach of men. Think of your brothers, think of your mother and your aunt, think of your child who will not be able to live once you are gone. Give up your pride. Perpetua was touched but remained unshaken. She tried to comfort her father. It will all happen in the prisoner's dock as God wills, for you may be sure that we are not left to ourselves but are all in his power. But her father walked out of the prison dejected. You might notice how Perpetua's father appealed to the notion of shame. He said he did not want to be a reproach. He was touching on his status as a Roman citizen. A lot of cultures, ancient and modern, take very seriously these ideas of honor and shame. I'm not going to get too technical with you, but honor is defined as the public recognition of one's social standing, public recognition. And back then, one could gain such recognition by being born into a noble family, sort of like what happens in the UK now and other places. Or one could acquire honor by doing something noteworthy, like, like spending money on something important or, or, or putting up a monument or a building or serving in the military. By contrast, shame is anything that would take away your status in the eyes of others. I wonder sometimes if American Christians are still operating with notions of honor and shame that depend on the eyes of others. We seem to be looking for honor in the eyes of the world by competing on the world's terms. We want to be as cool as them, as hip, as relevant, or whatever other catchphrase we have. And in trying to do that, we're not always real. We're not always genuine. We're not always vulnerable. 
I mean, sometimes the last place you can be vulnerable is the church. One thing we learned from Perpetua and Felicity is that living and dying for Jesus meant more to them than their status in Roman society. Can we say the same? Does living for Jesus mean more to us than our status in the eyes of certain people? Faith in Jesus does not necessarily lead to popularity. It could even lead to suffering, Paul says. But faith in Jesus, even through suffering, can simultaneously bring glory to God because suffering can serve to highlight God's grace. Suffering can serve to highlight God's grace. This is what Paul says. For him, the opposite of shame was not the honor that comes from the world, but the grace that comes from God. Grace is God's favor. Grace is something we don't deserve. Grace is having God do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. When Paul tells Timothy, don't be ashamed, he's trying to get Timothy not to worry about how the world might view his faith. Instead, he wants Timothy to live more fully into the grace of God. Paul was taken so much by this grace of God that he was willing to endure suffering for whatever reward God would give in this life or in the life to come. He gladly took on the role, he said, of herald or messenger, of apostle, of teacher, even though those things brought him trouble frequently. Even so, he believed that the grace of God was so amazing that he could completely entrust himself to the Lord's safekeeping. Let's see what he says in verse 12 again. He says, And for this reason I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed, for I know the one in whom I have put my trust. And I'm sure that he is able to guard until that day what I have entrusted to him. The old King James puts it this way. For the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. I note the King James because there's a hymn based on the King James songs, and you know me and some hymns. At my father's own funeral, my younger sister wanted to make sure we sang this hymn because it was one of my father's favorites. And um, so I led the congregation in it. Don't worry, I won't take us too much out of, uh, uh, off our target. But the song starts this way. I know not why God's wondrous grace to me he hath made known, nor why unworthy Christ in love redeemed me for his own. But I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Everything I have, everything I am, I entrust to the Lord. So I don't need to be ashamed what others would think. In essence... I've been asking us some questions as we go through these passages. I've been asking us, are we ashamed to live for Jesus? And if not, then can we experience God's miraculous work and not just our own clever ingenuity? I'm asking us to depend on the Lord. I'm asking us to entrust the Lord or trust the Lord with our whole lives, our whole selves, knowing that he has safeguarded everything about us, even our reputations. On Wednesday night, we often have some very touching interchanges. In this last several weeks, we've been having way more men come into Bible study than women, which I don't know what that means, but uh, Pastor Judy last week, she said, I think uh, Miss Pearl and I need to make some calls. Um, 
But I, I like to see it. And, and the men in the group have been very open and even, I would say, vulnerable in sharing some of the things that have been going on, what they've been thinking, or how the passages make them feel. This is not uh, usual in my experience. So it's been really very refreshing and welcome. That kind of vulnerability is not always the way of the world. We don't really want to see people at times be weak. Oh, maybe we do. I think that show, what's that show? This is us. Everybody's crying. Every time I see people put that on Facebook, like you should watch it, there's always somebody crying. And I said, why should I watch a show where everybody's crying? I don't, I don't get it. But maybe we are learning that it's not about honor in the eyes of others, but it's about the way of Jesus, grace. And that kind of vulnerability that we show will go further in winning people to Jesus than even a fancy show will. There's no shame in being honest and open. What would it look like if in our, in our life groups we continued to practice that kind of vulnerability? What would it look like if we continued to make space for people to ask questions about faith? What would it look like if we made it clear that you don't have to have your act together, you don't have to be perfect to be at the sanctuary, you are welcome in your confusion, in your imperfection, and even in the messiness of life? What, could, what, what might it mean if more and more Christians could truly be Christ followers and not the followers of particular political parties or personalities. The Apostle Paul tells Timothy, and he tells us, don't be ashamed. Embrace your identity as a follower of Jesus. And notice how Paul gives some invitations or commands to Timothy. He says, join me in suffering. Now, that's quite an invitation. Join me in suffering. He says, hold to the standard of sound teaching you heard from me. Guard the treasure entrusted to you. So you see those commands? Join, hold on, guard. That's the language of commitment. My kids here today, as I mentioned, they've sat through hundreds of my sermons, including messages I've delivered at weddings. Many times at weddings, I used to tell the old joke, in a meal of bacon and eggs, the chicken makes a contribution, the pig makes a commitment. And um, yeah, you get it. We don't get the bacon unless the pig gives its life. And commitment entails the giving of our whole lives, just like Timothy, just like Paul, just like Perpetua and Felicity. Now, it's unlikely that we're going to be called upon to die, despite the rhetoric of some Christians. We're not being persecuted for our faith here in the United States. But Paul wants all the readers of this letter, and that includes us, to recall the ministry of Jesus. He says in verse 10, the good news is that Jesus abolished death and he brought immortality and life. All day long, we live in the reality that life is hard. All of us know people who are suffering in some way, even facing death. There are those who are far away from here facing death in war zones. There are those who are facing death and fleeing their homes, looking for asylum. There are those who are facing death because someone in power is abusing them emotionally, physically, sexually. There are people facing death because of horrible diseases like cancer. There are people facing death at potentially their own hands because depression has taken them to such a dark place. What do we do in the face of death and suffering? Some people throw their hands up in defeat. They don't know what to do. Some people try to ignore the reality. So, so they'll keep their shoulder to the wheel and their nose to the grindstone, working hard but not really sure why. Some people try to anesthetize their fear, wasting money on alcohol and drugs and other drugs and delving into fantasies of sex and even video games, wasting all kinds of time. Many segments of our society don't know what to do about their fears, including the fear of death. And here we have a savior that Paul says abolished death 
and brought life and immortality. We struggle to believe this. We struggle to believe that there's more than what we see. Is there really eternal life? Is there really life after death? Can there really be abundant, meaningful life here and now? I'm here to say that the answer to those questions is yes. I'm here to say that life, death, and resurrection of Jesus are the reasons why we can have life. I'm here to say that Jesus brings life. I'm here to say that Jesus defeated death. Amen. Now, I know I cannot approve this to you the way some people need proof. I don't think that an emotional or rational argument will, will eventually make you change your mind. But even so, week after week, I try to offer a credible case anyway for believing in Jesus. Might not be the slam dunk proof that you're looking, but at least I can give you some reason to believe that if you give your life away, you will gain much more in return. And what you gain is deeper than material possessions or status in the eyes of the world. As I try to explain this, I think about one point in the life of Jesus' public ministry. When he met a man that we call the rich young ruler, he had an interchange with him about eternal life, following the law. And he tells the man, well, give away your money and come follow me. Well, he couldn't do that. The money had a grip on his heart. And right after that interchange, Peter, speaking for the disciples, he says, in essence, well, what about us? We gave up everything to follow you. What about us? And Jesus responds, and we have a response here in Mark's gospel, chapter 10, starting at verse 29. Jesus said, truly, I tell you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the good news, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this age, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, and children and fields with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Much of my life, I've heard Prosperity people interpret those verses on merely American economic terms. You put in some money, you get your hundredfold blessing. And they particularly think in terms of material blessings because that's the way America operates. So you see preachers going after bigger houses and jets and convincing their followers that Jesus wants you financially rich like them. Of course, they're getting rich off of tax-free contributions that you're making. And it's not at all what Jesus is saying. Jesus is about relationships way more than material possessions. Over the years of being a follower of Jesus, I have stayed in a lot of other people's homes. I've gained houses. I've become connected to believers in the Czech Republic, in parts of South Africa, Kenya, Rwanda, Palestine, other places I've visited outside our country and many states here in this country. I have gained brothers and sisters. My mother died when I was 20 years old, and there were times in my life where older women in the church treated me with motherly love. I gained mothers. I have four awesome children, and through marriage, the number increases. And there are other young people I've known for years. I've performed some of their weddings. I've mentored some in ministry. I've even dedicated some of their children. It's almost as if I've gained children. I never joined a Greek organization in college like many of you, but even without that connection, 
I've gained houses, sisters, brothers, mothers, children, a hundredfold. What I'm saying is that these words of Jesus find their fulfillment in the life of Christian community. That's why I say church is so important. Sunday worship is important, don't get me wrong, but that's one part of what this Christian life is about. It's about not being ashamed of Jesus. It's about holding on to what the Lord taught and trusting him with our lives. Getting back to Paul's words, verse 8, verse 13, verse 14, that language of, of, of joining me, holding on, guarding. What might this mean for you? Will you leave here today just the same way you came in, or will you leave here with a renewed determination to hold on to what Jesus taught us in words and in actions? Now, I realize that as I leave the sanctuary, there'll be some discussion and thought, as it should be, about where we should go. What's the direction? Some will try to get back to the glory days of the past. My encouragement to you is to make sure that you look beyond the Sunday event. Now, I know pastors are largely evaluated on how large a crowd we can get. I understand that's the American way. But for what it's worth, I say God will provide the right senior leader as you prayerfully go through the process. But the larger goal, the real goal, is that we unashamedly live as followers of Jesus, which isn't about politics, but about holding firmly to what Jesus taught. This boils down to loving God wholeheartedly, loving our neighbors as ourselves, and loving even our enemies. This is what Jesus said are the greatest commandments. The greatest commandments. I'm going to say it one more time. Greatest commandments. Well, finally, Paul names some names. <laughs> he names people we don't even know because the names don't show up anywhere else in the New Testament. But presumably, Timothy knew Phagellus and Hermogenes and Onesiphorus. And Paul seems particularly disappointed that Phagellus and Hermogenes turned on him. I don't know what it means, but clearly it was not good for Paul. Yet Onesiphorus is raised as a positive example. He went out of his way. Paul says he had to search for me. He probably had to search around Rome to find out what prison Paul's in, what's he doing, what's going on. And he says, get this, he was not ashamed of my chains. There's that word again. What about us? Are we ashamed to be counted as followers of Jesus? Are we ashamed of humble circumstances for the people of God, even if they have great faith? Are we ashamed to be in North Minneapolis and not Edina? That was supposed to make you laugh, but maybe that was serious. Okay. <laughs> but seriously, there was a police shooting last night. And we already know that our corner here is lively, and that liveliness is not always positive. Are we ashamed of our context? What might it mean if more of us strive to live unashamedly for Jesus, holding on to what he taught us? So I extend an invitation. The invitation is to make or renew your commitment to follow Jesus. And that commitment to follow, while it does mean attending services, yes, is much deeper than that. It means connecting in such a way to Christian community that we grow in our faith, we grow in hope, we grow in love. And those virtues will help us transform our neighborhood. Don't be ashamed.
entrust everything to God's care and hold on to what he taught us. Lord, we give you praise today because you are great and greatly to be praised. We give you thanks, Lord God, because we know you're here. No matter how many or few of us, you are present in your, among your people. And we give you thanks for that. And Lord, we give you glory that we can come and sing and celebrate and also hear from you. And I pray, Lord God, that the words of scripture would take root in our lives, that we could be like Timothy, receiving what Paul has to tell us, and that by receiving what he has to tell us, we would make some, uh, some adjustments in our lives so we could live more faithfully. Maybe it does mean laying aside certain things. Maybe it means um, uh, not feeling embarrassed to be a Christ follower in this world, but, but living more boldly into that identity. Lord, I don't know what it means for each person here, but I do believe that collectively, as we unashamedly live for Jesus, that you will do a work of transformation because you're the one who defeated death and brings life and immortality. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Have your way, Lord. Amen. Amen. While 2911 shares with us in music again.